you are now tuned into World War I Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, here to guide you through the labyrinth of memories and tales from the war to end all wars. Each Tuesday and Thursday, we dive headfirst into the captivating stories of World War I. We will traverse the trenches, soar with the Red Baron, and witness the dawn of modern warfare. We'll recount tales of courage and sacrifice, of human endurance against the odds, and of a world forever changed. But our journey through history doesn't stop there. For those of you eager to continue the exploration, we invite you to check out our sister podcast dedicated to World War II, which explores the next dramatic chapter of global conflict. You can find the link in the description or head over to podhour.com slash ww1. In the early summer of 1914, Europe was a continent on the brink. The great powers of the day, bound by a complex web of alliances and rivalries, were locked in an escalating arms race, their populations stirred by nationalist fervor and their leaders gripped by a sense of impending crisis. The spark that would ignite this volatile mix came on June 28, in the city of Sarajevo, when a young Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip fired the shots that killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. This singular act of violence set in motion a series of events that would come to be known as the July Crisis, a month-long diplomatic and military standoff that would plunge the world into the most destructive war it had ever seen. The assassination, the ultimatums, the mobilizations, and the declarations of war were not just the actions of individuals or nations, but the manifestations of deeper forces at work, nationalism, imperialism, militarism, and the failure of diplomacy. In this story, we will journey back to those fateful days of the July crisis, exploring the decisions made by emperors, generals, and politicians, the forces that drove them, and the consequences of their actions. We will delve into the intricate dance of diplomacy and the brutal realities of warfare, the grand strategies and the personal tragedies. And we will seek to understand how the events of that summer set the stage for the horrors of World War I, reshape the world, and continue to echo in our own time. This is not just a story of a crisis, but a story of humanity at a crossroads, a story that holds lessons for us all. Chapter 1 The Spark That Ignited the Fire On a sunny morning in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, a parade of cars wound its way through the city streets. It was June 28, 1914, and the man at the center of this procession was Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. He was in Sarajevo on a state visit, accompanied by his wife, Sophie. The couple was blissfully unaware of the danger lurking in the crowd that day. Among the throng of spectators lining the route was a young man named Gavrilo Princip. He was a member of the Black Hand, a secret society committed to the cause of Serbian nationalism. The Black Hand had hatched a plot to assassinate the Archduke, seeing his death as a blow against the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which they believed was oppressing Serbs within its borders. The motorcade proceeded along the Appel Quay, the main road along the Miljaka River. As the cars passed by, one of Princip's co-conspirators hurled a bomb at the Archduke's car. But the bomb bounced off the folded-back convertible cover and exploded under the following vehicle. 
the procession sped up, leaving the would-be assassins behind. Shaken but unharmed, the Archduke arrived at the city hall for an official reception. After the reception, despite the morning's attack, Franz Ferdinand insisted on visiting the injured officers in the hospital. The drivers, however, were not informed of this change in plan. As fate would have it, the Archduke's car took a wrong turn onto a side street, where Princip happened to be standing. Seizing his opportunity, Princip stepped forward and fired two shots from a distance of less than five feet. The first bullet struck Franz Ferdinand's wife Sophie, the second hit the Archduke himself. In the chaos that followed, Princip was apprehended, but the damage had been done. Despite the efforts of the Archduke's aides, both Franz Ferdinand and Sophie succumbed to their injuries within the hour. The news of their deaths sent shockwaves through the corridors of power in Europe, setting the stage for the crisis that would unfold over the following weeks. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand was more than just a tragic event. It was the spark that ignited the powder keg of Europe, a continent already teetering on the brink of war. The actions of a single young man had set in motion a chain of events that would change the course of history. In the heart of the Balkans, a wave of nationalism was sweeping across Serbia. The year was 1914, and the dream of a united South Slav state was gaining momentum. This dream was shared by a secret society known as the Black Hand, a group that would play a pivotal role in the events leading up to World War I. The Black Hand, or Unification or Death as it was officially known, was founded in 1911 by a group of Serbian army officers. The charismatic and influential Colonel Dragudin Dimitrijevic, also known as Apis, was one of its key leaders. The society's goal was clear and uncompromising, the unification of all territories with a South Slav majority, not by diplomatic means, but through acts of terrorism and assassination. Gavrilo Princip, the young man who assassinated Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was deeply influenced by this wave of nationalism and the radical ideology of the Black Hand. Born into a poor Bosnian Serb family, Princip was a fervent believer in the cause of Serbian unification. He saw the Austro-Hungarian rule in Bosnia as oppressive and believed that the assassination of the Archduke would be a step towards freeing his people. The Black Hand provided Princip and his fellow conspirators with the weapons and training they needed for their deadly mission. The group's involvement was a closely guarded secret, but its fingerprints were all over the assassination plot. Yet, the Black Hand did not operate in a vacuum. Its activities were part of a broader surge of Serbian nationalism, fueled by recent victories in the Balkan Wars and the dream of a greater Serbia. This nationalist fervor was not confined to secret societies and radical groups, it permeated Serbian society and even elements of the government. The assassination in Sarajevo was a manifestation of this potent mix of nationalism and radicalism. It was a desperate act by a group of young men who believed they were striking a blow for their nation's freedom. But the consequences of their actions would reach far beyond the borders of Serbia, plunging the whole of Europe into war. The story of the Black Hand and Serbian nationalism is a testament to the power of ideas and the lengths to which people will go to achieve their goals. It is a story of passion and conviction, 
but also a stark reminder of the dangers of extremism and the unpredictable forces it can unleash. News of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie hit Vienna like a thunderbolt. The heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne was dead, and the culprit was a Serbian nationalist. The shock quickly gave way to a thirst for retribution. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, a patchwork of different ethnicities and cultures, saw this act as a direct challenge to its authority and a threat to its very existence. At the helm of the empire was the aging emperor Franz Joseph. He had already weathered many storms during his long reign, but the assassination of his nephew and heir was a blow of a different magnitude. Despite his personal grief, the emperor knew he had to respond decisively. In the corridors of power in Vienna, the decision-makers were divided. The foreign minister, Count Leopold von Berchtold, and the chief of the general staff, Konrad von Hotzendorf, were among those who advocated for a hard-line response. They saw the assassination as an opportunity to settle the so-called Serbian question once and for all. Others, like the Hungarian prime minister Istvan Tissa, were more cautious, fearing that a war with Serbia could trigger a broader conflict with Russia, Serbia's ally. But the hawks in the Austro-Hungarian government had the upper hand. The result was the July Ultimatum, a list of ten demands so harsh that they were designed to be unacceptable. Serbia was to suppress all anti-Austro-Hungarian propaganda, dissolve nationalist groups like the Black Hand, and even allow Austro-Hungarian officials to participate in the investigation and trial of those involved in the assassination. When Serbia's response, though conciliatory, did not meet all the demands to Vienna's satisfaction, the die was cast. On July 28, 1914, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, marking the beginning of World War I. The response of Austria-Hungary to the assassination was a fateful decision that set the wheels of war in motion. It was a decision driven by a mix of fear, anger, and ambition, and it would have consequences far beyond what anyone in Vienna could have imagined. The echoes of that decision would reverberate through the coming years, shaping the course of the 20th century in ways that still affect us today. Chapter 2 The Powder Keg of Europe in the early years of the 20th century, the Balkan Peninsula was a region in turmoil. The Ottoman Empire, once a formidable power that had dominated the region for centuries, was in decline. Its grip on its Balkan territories was weakening, and the nations of the Balkans were eager to assert their independence and expand their borders. This volatile situation set the stage for the Balkan Wars a series of conflicts that would reshape the map of the region and upset the delicate balance of power in Europe. The First Balkan War broke out in 1912. Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, and Montenegro, united in what was known as the Balkan League, went to war against the Ottoman Empire. The goal was to seize the remaining European territories of the crumbling Ottoman Empire. The Balkan League was successful and the Ottomans were pushed back to a small corner of Europe around the city of Constantinople. But the victory was short-lived. Disputes over the spoils of war led to the Second Balkan War in 1913. This time, former allies turned on each other. Bulgaria, dissatisfied with its share of Macedonia, attacked Serbia and Greece. 
the war ended with Bulgaria defeated and further territorial gains for Serbia, Greece, and also Romania, which had joined the war against Bulgaria. These wars had a profound impact on the balance of power in Europe. Serbia emerged as a major power in the Balkans, stoking the fears of Austria-Hungary, which saw the rise of Serbian nationalism as a threat to its own multi-ethnic empire. Russia, which had historical and cultural ties with the Slavic nations of the Balkans, was drawn closer to Serbia. This alarmed Germany, Austria-Hungary's main ally, and deepened the divisions between the two blocks of powers in Europe. The Balkan Wars also contributed to the arms race among the European powers. The wars were a showcase for modern weaponry and tactics, and they highlighted the importance of having a well-equipped and well-trained army. This led to increased military spending, especially in Germany and Britain, further escalating tensions. In the grand chessboard of European politics, the Balkan Wars were a crucial turning point. They redrew the map of a volatile region, strengthened alliances, and heightened rivalries. The wars were a stark reminder of the destructive power of nationalist ambitions and the dangers of a heavily armed and tense Europe. When Gavrilo Princip fired his gun in Sarajevo in 1914, he lit the fuse of a bomb that had been years in the making. The late 19th and early 20th centuries in Europe were a time of great change and uncertainty. As nations jostled for power and influence, they sought security and advantage in a complex web of alliances. These alliances, intended to maintain a balance of power, would instead become a catalyst for a conflict of unprecedented scale. In the heart of Europe, two major alliances had formed by 1914. On one side was the Triple Entente, a loose agreement of friendship and cooperation between France, Russia, and Britain. On the other side stood the Central Powers, a more formal alliance between Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. The Triple Entente had its roots in the long-standing rivalry between France and Germany. Ever since the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, France had been seeking an opportunity to regain the territories of Alsace and Lorraine, which it had lost to Germany. Russia, for its part, saw an alliance with France as a counterbalance to the threat posed by the Central Powers on its western border. Britain, initially hesitant to commit to an alliance, was drawn in by the rising power of Germany, particularly its rapidly expanding navy, which threatened British naval supremacy. The Central Powers, meanwhile, were bound together by a shared sense of being surrounded by potential enemies. Germany, under the leadership of Kaiser Wilhelm II, was pursuing a policy of Weltpolitik, or world politics, aimed at establishing Germany as a global power. Austria-Hungary, a multi-ethnic empire with its own internal tensions, was looking for support against the rising tide of nationalism within and outside its borders. Italy, although part of the central powers, had conflicting interests and would eventually switch sides during the war. These alliances were not static. They evolved and shifted over time, influenced by changing political, economic, and military circumstances. But by 1914, they had created two opposing blocks of powers in Europe, each viewing the other with suspicion and fear. When the crisis in the Balkans erupted in the summer of 1914, 
these alliances transformed a regional conflict into a global war. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary by a Serbian nationalist set off a chain reaction. Bound by their alliances, one by one, the powers of Europe were drawn into the conflict. The story of these entangling alliances is a tale of diplomatic maneuvering, strategic calculation, and sometimes, simple miscalculation. It is a reminder of how the decisions of a few can affect the lives of many and how the paths to war can often be paved with good intentions. As the 20th century dawned, Europe was not just a continent of alliances and rivalries, but also a hotbed of militarism. The belief that a nation's greatness was reflected in the strength of its armed forces was widely held. This belief, coupled with the tensions between the major powers, led to an unprecedented arms race. Germany under the ambitious Kaiser Wilhelm II, was rapidly expanding its army and navy. Wilhelm, a man with a grand vision of Germany's place in the world, was determined to challenge Britain's naval supremacy. He embarked on a massive shipbuilding program aiming to transform the German navy into a force that could rival the mighty British fleet. In Britain, this German naval expansion was viewed with alarm. Britain, an island nation, had long relied on its navy for defense and to protect its vast overseas empire. The British response was to launch its own program of naval expansion, including the construction of a new class of battleships known as dreadnoughts. These ships were larger, faster, and more heavily armed than any that had come before. Meanwhile, on the continent, the armies of France, Russia, and Austria-Hungary were also growing. New weapons, such as machine guns and artillery, were being developed and produced at an ever-increasing rate. Military planning and strategy became increasingly focused on offense and rapid mobilization, leading to a situation where any conflict could quickly escalate. This arms race was not just about weapons and soldiers. It was also about public sentiment. In many countries, the media and the education system glorified the military and promoted the idea of war as a noble endeavor. This culture of militarism created an environment where war, rather than being seen as a last resort, was viewed as a valid means of achieving national objectives. The arms race and militarism of the early 20th century created a climate of fear and suspicion. Each increase in military spending was seen as a threat that needed to be countered, leading to a vicious cycle of escalation. When the crisis in the Balkans erupted in 1914, these military machines were set in motion, turning a regional conflict into a global war. The story of the arms race and militarism is a cautionary tale about the dangers of unchecked military expansion and the glorification of war. It serves as a reminder that the path to war is often paved with fear and suspicion, and that once set in motion, the machinery of war can be difficult to stop. Chapter 3. The July Crisis Unfolds In the aftermath of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the halls of power in Vienna were buzzing with discussions of retaliation. The Austro-Hungarian Empire, a vast realm of diverse cultures and ethnicities, felt its very existence threatened by the rising tide of Serbian nationalism. The decision was made to send a stern message not just to Serbia, but to the world. The result was an ultimatum, 
a document that would push Europe to the brink of war. On July 23, 1914, the Austro-Hungarian minister in Belgrade, Baron Giesel von Gieslingen, delivered the ultimatum to the Serbian government. The document contained ten demands, each one a direct affront to Serbian sovereignty. Among these were the suppression of anti-Austro-Hungarian propaganda, the dissolution of nationalist groups like the Black Hand, and the participation of Austro-Hungarian officials in the investigation into the assassination. The ultimatum was designed to be unacceptable. It was a calculated move by Austria-Hungary, backed by its powerful ally Germany, to provoke a war with Serbia. The Serbian Prime Minister, Nikola Pazic, was given just 48 hours to respond. In Belgrade, the ultimatum was met with a mixture of defiance and fear. Serbia was a small country, but it was fiercely proud and had recently seen success in the Balkan Wars. However, the prospect of a war with the mighty Austro-Hungarian Empire was daunting. Pazic and his cabinet worked feverishly to craft a response that would avoid war without surrendering their national dignity. The Serbian response, delivered just before the deadline, agreed to most of the demands but balked at allowing Austro-Hungarian officials onto Serbian soil, citing this as a violation of their constitution and international law. To Vienna, this was not enough. Five days after issuing the ultimatum, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. The Austro-Hungarian ultimatum marked a critical moment in the lead-up to World War I. It was a bold move, a gamble that escalated a regional crisis into a conflict that would engulf the entire continent. The story of the ultimatum is a tale of diplomatic brinkmanship, national pride, and the tragic miscalculations that can lead to war. As the echoes of the Austro-Hungarian ultimatum faded, the rumblings of war began to reverberate across Europe. The great powers, bound by a web of alliances and fueled by a climate of fear and suspicion, began to mobilize their armies. This mobilization, a complex and massive undertaking, would set the stage for the cataclysm to come. In Russia, Tsar Nicholas II faced a difficult decision. As the protector of Slavic peoples, Russia felt a duty to come to Serbia's aid. But war with Austria-Hungary meant war with Germany, a formidable adversary. After much deliberation, the Tsar ordered a partial mobilization of the Russian army on July 29, 1914. This decision set off alarm bells in Berlin. Germany, located in the middle of the European continent, had long feared a two-front war with France and Russia. The German war plan, known as the Schlieffen Plan, called for a quick strike against France through neutral Belgium, followed by a defensive action against Russia. With Russia mobilizing, the German Kaiser Wilhelm II and his military advisors felt they had no choice but to put this plan into action. On August 1, Germany declared war on Russia. Two days later, it declared war on France and began its invasion of Belgium. This violation of Belgian neutrality, a clear breach of international law, brought Britain into the war. By August 4, all the major powers of Europe were at war. The mobilization of armies in 1914 was an event of unprecedented scale. Millions of men were called up to serve, leaving their homes and families behind. 
trains carried troops and equipment to the front lines, horses were requisitioned for cavalry and transport, and factories began to churn out weapons and ammunition. It was a massive display of national power and organizational capability. Yet, this mobilization was not just a physical process, but a psychological one as well. It marked the transition from peace to war, from normal life to a state of emergency. It stirred up a mix of fear, excitement, and patriotic fervor. The people of Europe, unaware of the horrors that awaited, cheered the soldiers as they marched off to war. The story of the mobilization of armies in 1914 is a testament to the power of nations and the momentum of events. Once set in motion, this massive machine of war proved impossible to stop. It is a stark reminder of the thin line between peace and war, and the tragic consequences when that line is crossed. As the armies of Europe mobilized for war, a frantic effort was underway to avert the impending catastrophe. Diplomats, statesmen, and monarchs exchanged a flurry of messages, seeking a peaceful resolution to the crisis. But despite their best efforts, diplomacy would fail and the world would be plunged into war. One of the key figures in these diplomatic efforts was Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary. Grey was deeply troubled by the prospect of a European war and worked tirelessly to mediate between the powers. He proposed a conference of ambassadors to resolve the dispute between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, but this proposal was rejected by Germany. In Germany, Chancellor Theobald von Bethmann-Holweg was caught in a difficult position. He was aware of the dangers of a general war and tried to restrain Austria-Hungary's aggression towards Serbia. But he was also under pressure from the German military, which was pushing for a swift and decisive action. In Russia, Tsar Nicholas II and his foreign minister, Sergei Sazanov, were trying to balance their commitment to Serbia with their desire to avoid war. They hoped that their mobilization would deter Austria-Hungary and Germany, but it only escalated the crisis. Meanwhile, in Vienna and Belgrade, the capitals of Austria-Hungary and Serbia, the voices calling for peace were drowned out by the cries for war. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand had created a thirst for revenge in Austria-Hungary, while Serbia, emboldened by its recent victories in the Balkan Wars, was unwilling to accept the harsh terms of the Austro-Hungarian ultimatum. The failure of diplomacy in the summer of 1914 was a tragic missed opportunity. The leaders of Europe, bound by their alliances and blinded by their fears and ambitions, were unable to step back from the brink of war. The channels of communication were open, but the messages were not getting through. The story of the failure of diplomacy is a sobering reminder of the importance of dialogue and understanding in international relations. It shows how easily misunderstandings and miscalculations can lead to disaster, and how the decisions of a few can determine the fate of many. It is a lesson that remains as relevant today as it was over a century ago. Chapter 4 the outbreak of war. The summer of 1914 was drawing to a close, but the heat of the July crisis was far from over. The diplomatic efforts to resolve the conflict had failed, and the armies of Europe were on the move. The final act in this tragic drama was about to unfold, the declarations of war. The first to declare war was Austria-Hungary. 
On July 28, after receiving what it deemed an unsatisfactory response to its ultimatum, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. The news was met with jubilation in Vienna, where crowds gathered to cheer the decision. In Belgrade, the mood was defiant, as Serbia prepared to resist the Austro-Hungarian onslaught. The declaration of war on Serbia set off a chain reaction. Russia, bound by its alliance with Serbia and its role as the protector of Slavic peoples, began a general mobilization of its forces. This move alarmed Germany, which saw the Russian mobilization as a direct threat. On August 1, Germany declared war on Russia. Two days later, it declared war on Russia's ally, France. The German war plan, known as the Schlieffen Plan, called for a quick strike against France through Belgium. But Belgium was a neutral country, and its violation by German troops brought Britain into the war. On August 4, Britain declared war on Germany. The declarations of war were more than just formalities. They were solemn and momentous decisions that signaled a commitment to use force to resolve the crisis. They were met with a mix of fear, excitement, and patriotic fervor. Across Europe, people gathered in public squares to hear the news, and young men rushed to enlist, eager to do their part for their countries. The story of the declarations of war in 1914 is a tale of dominoes falling, of alliances triggering one another in a rapid and unstoppable sequence. It is a testament to the power of treaties and obligations, and the dangers of a heavily armed and tense continent. It is a reminder of the moment when the hopes for peace were finally extinguished, and the long and bloody journey of World War I began. As the drums of war began to beat across Europe, the German high command turned to a plan that had been years in the making. Known as the Schlieffen Plan, it was Germany's blueprint for a two-front war against France and Russia, its two powerful neighbors. The plan was daring, ambitious, and fraught with risk but it was Germany's best hope for victory. The Schlieffen Plan was named after its architect, Count Alfred von Schlieffen, the former chief of the German general staff. Schlieffen had recognized Germany's strategic dilemma, the threat of having to fight a war on two fronts. His solution was a bold strategy of rapid mobilization and attack. The plan called for the bulk of the German army to swing through neutral Belgium and into northern France bypassing the heavily fortified French-German border. The goal was to encircle and capture Paris, forcing France to surrender quickly. Meanwhile, a smaller German force would hold off the Russian army in the east, which was expected to be slow to mobilize. Once France was defeated, the full might of the German army could be turned against Russia. It was a gamble, but Schlieffen believed it was Germany's only chance to avoid a long, drawn-out war on two fronts. When war broke out in 1914, the Schlieffen Plan was put into action. German troops poured into Belgium, meeting with unexpected resistance. The violation of Belgian neutrality outraged the international community and brought Britain into the war. As the German army pushed into France, the speed and scale of their advance were breathtaking. But the plan began to unravel. The French put up a fierce resistance, and the Russian army mobilized faster than expected. By the time of the First Battle of the Marne in September 1914, the Schlieffen Plan had effectively failed. 
The story of the Schlieffen plan is a tale of military strategy and its limitations. It shows how even the most carefully laid plans can be undone by the realities of war. It is a reminder of the unpredictability of conflict and the high stakes of decision-making in times of crisis. The failure of the Schlieffen plan set the stage for a long and grueling war of attrition, a war that would change the face of Europe and the world. With the declarations of war echoing across Europe, the stage was set for the opening battles of World War I. These early clashes would set the tone for the brutal conflict to come, revealing the devastating power of modern weaponry and the courage and resilience of the men who fought. In the West, the German army, following the Schlieffen plan, swept through Belgium and into France. The Belgians, vastly outnumbered, put up a fierce resistance. The city of Liege, with its ring of forts, held out for eleven days against the German onslaught, buying valuable time for the French and British to mobilize their forces. Meanwhile, in the east, the Russian army moved faster than the Germans had anticipated. They launched an invasion of East Prussia, forcing the Germans to divert troops from the Western Front. The Battle of Tannenberg, fought between the German and Russian armies in late August, was a decisive German victory, but it highlighted the threat that Russia posed. Back in the West, the British Expeditionary Force met the advancing German army at the Battle of Mons in Belgium. Despite being heavily outnumbered, the British put up a stubborn defense, inflicting heavy casualties on the Germans before being forced to retreat. The most significant of these early battles was the First Battle of the Marne, fought in early September. The French, with support from the British, managed to halt the German advance just miles from Paris. The battle was a turning point, marking the failure of the Schlieffen plan and the beginning of trench warfare on the Western Front. These opening battles were a shocking introduction to the realities of modern warfare. The rapid movement of troops, the roar of artillery, the rattle of machine guns, and the sight of men falling on the battlefield were a far cry from the romantic notions of war that many had held. They marked the end of the old way of fighting and the beginning of a new and terrifying era. The story of these opening battles is a story of courage under fire, of strategies tested and plans unraveled, of the thin line between victory and defeat. It is a glimpse into the maelstrom of World War I a conflict that would test the mettle of nations and shape the course of the 20th century. Chapter 5 The July Crisis and the Escalation of World War I As the battles raged in Europe, the conflict began to spread beyond the continent. What had begun as a regional dispute in the Balkans was transforming into a global war, drawing in nations from around the world and forever altering the course of history. One of the first countries to be drawn into the conflict was Japan. As an ally of Britain, Japan declared war on Germany in August 1914. The Japanese saw an opportunity to expand their influence in the Pacific and Asia. They quickly seized the German colonies in China and the Pacific Islands, marking the beginning of Japan's rise as a global power. In the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, an ally of the Central Powers, entered the war in November 1914. This opened up a new front in the war, leading to battles in places like Gallipoli, Mesopotamia, and Palestine. The war in the Middle East not only drew in troops from Britain, France, 
Australia, and New Zealand, but also sparked the Arab revolt against Ottoman rule, a conflict that would reshape the Middle East. Meanwhile, across the Atlantic, the United States was striving to remain neutral. President Woodrow Wilson was determined to keep America out of the European conflict. But the war was already affecting the United States economically, as it became a major supplier of food and munitions to the Allies. The sinking of the passenger ship Lusitania by a German submarine in 1915, with the loss of 128 American lives, stirred public opinion in the U.S., setting the stage for its eventual entry into the war in 1917. In Africa, the war took on a different dimension. The continent became a battleground as the Allies sought to seize the overseas colonies of Germany. Troops from Britain, France, and Belgium, often aided by local forces, clashed with German forces in places like Togo, Cameroon, and German East Africa. The globalization of the conflict in World War I was a testament to the interconnectedness of the world in the early 20th century. The war touched every continent, affected millions of lives, and reshaped the political map of the world. It was a truly global conflict, a fact that added to its complexity and its devastating impact. The story of the globalization of the conflict is a story of how a spark in one corner of the world can ignite a fire that spreads far and wide. It is a reminder of the far-reaching consequences of war and the profound ways in which our destinies are interconnected. While the trenches of the Western Front and the battles of the Eastern Front often dominate the narrative of World War I, the war at sea played a crucial role in the conflict. The naval battles and blockades of the Great War had far-reaching consequences, affecting the course of the war and the lives of those on the home front. At the start of the war, Britain, with its formidable Royal Navy, held dominance over the world's oceans. The British implemented a naval blockade of Germany, aiming to cut off vital supplies and crippled the German war effort. The blockade was incredibly effective, leading to shortages of food and raw materials in Germany, but it also caused hardships for neutral countries and raised questions about the laws of war. Germany, although outmatched on the surface, had a potent weapon in its U-boat submarines. These vessels, capable of stealthy underwater attacks, posed a significant threat to Allied shipping. The most infamous of these attacks was the sinking of the passenger liner Lusitania in 1915, which resulted in the deaths of nearly 1,200 people, including 128 Americans. The incident caused international outrage and contributed to the United States' decision to enter the war in 1917. The war at sea also saw major naval battles. The largest of these was the Battle of Jutland in 1916, where the British Royal Navy and the German High Seas Fleet clashed in the North Sea. The battle, which involved some 250 ships and 100,000 men, ended inconclusively, but it was the largest sea battle of the war and one of the largest in naval history. The war at sea also extended beyond Europe. In the Pacific, Japan seized Germany's colonies and naval bases, while in the Atlantic, U-boats threatened shipping lanes, and in the Mediterranean, the Allies and Central Powers vied for control. The story of the war at sea during World War I is a tale of strategy and technology, of blockades and U-boats, 
of battles fought not in the trenches, but on the waves. It's a story that highlights the global nature of the conflict and the vital importance of naval power. It serves as a reminder that wars are not just fought on land, but also on the vast expanses of the world's oceans. While the battles of World War I were fought in the trenches, on the seas, and in the skies, another crucial front existed, the home front. The war touched every aspect of civilian life, from the factories to the farms, from the dinner table to the schoolroom. It was here, away from the front lines, that the war was supported, endured, and remembered. In Britain, the war effort permeated every facet of daily life. Women, with their husbands, sons, and brothers away at the front, stepped into roles previously held by men. They worked in factories, producing munitions and supplies for the troops. They served as nurses, caring for the wounded and sick. The suffragette movement, which had been fighting for women's right to vote, saw many of its members put their campaign on hold to support the war effort, a decision that would ultimately help them achieve their goal after the war. In Germany, the home front was marked by hardship and sacrifice. The British naval blockade led to shortages of food and fuel, causing widespread hunger and hardship. The German government implemented rationing and encouraged citizens to grow their own food in war gardens. Despite these difficulties, the German people showed remarkable resilience, supporting the war effort through buying war bonds and participating in voluntary service. In Russia, the strains of the war exacerbated existing social and political tensions, leading to the Russian Revolution in 1917. The war had a profound impact on Russian society, contributing to the fall of the Tsar and the rise of the Soviet Union. In the United States, which entered the war in 1917, the home front saw a surge of patriotism and a mobilization of resources. The government launched a massive propaganda campaign to build support for the war, and industries were retooled to produce war materials. The story of the home fronts during World War I is a story of societies and transformation. It's a tale of sacrifice and endurance, of change and adaptation. It's a reminder that the effects of war reach far beyond the battlefield, touching the lives of those at home in profound and lasting ways. Chapter 6 The Legacy of the July Crisis The cataclysm of World War I didn't just redraw the map of Europe, it also marked the end of empires that had ruled for centuries. The war, with its immense human and economic toll, shook these empires to their foundations, leading to revolutions, independence movements, and the birth of new nations. In Russia, the war exacerbated existing social and economic tensions. The Russian Empire, under Tsar Nicholas II, was ill-prepared for the demands of a modern war. Military defeats, food shortages, and a lack of political reform led to widespread discontent. This culminated in the Russian Revolution of 1917, which saw the abdication of the Tsar and the rise of the Bolsheviks, who promised peace, land, and bread. The Russian Empire was replaced by the Soviet Union, a new kind of state based on communist ideology. In the heart of Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was also unraveling. The empire, a patchwork of different ethnicities and languages, was strained by the war. 
nationalist movements gained strength, and in the aftermath of the war, the empire was dismantled. New nations, including Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, and Hungary, emerged from its ruins. The German Empire, under Kaiser Wilhelm II, had entered the war with dreams of becoming a global power. But the war ended in military defeat and political revolution. In November 1918, faced with internal unrest and a mutiny of the navy, the Kaiser abdicated and fled to the Netherlands. Germany was declared a republic, and the Weimar Republic was established. The Ottoman Empire, which had ruled over the Middle East for centuries, also met its end. The empire had joined the war on the side of the Central Powers, hoping to regain lost territories. But the war only hastened its decline. In the aftermath of the war, the empire was partitioned by the victorious allies, and the modern state of Turkey emerged from its ashes. The end of these empires marked a significant shift in the world order. It was the end of an era of monarchies and the birth of new nations and ideologies. The story of the end of empires is a tale of the transformative power of war, of the rise and fall of great powers, and of the enduring desire for self-determination. It is a chapter in history that still resonates today, as we grapple with the legacy of these fallen empires. The guns of World War I fell silent on November 11, 1918 but the task of building a lasting peace was just beginning. The leaders of the victorious allies gathered in the Palace of Versailles, just outside Paris, to negotiate a peace treaty. The Treaty of Versailles, signed on June 28, 1919, was intended to ensure a lasting peace, but it also sowed the seeds of future conflict. The key figures at the Versailles Conference were the leaders of the Big Four, President Woodrow Wilson of the United States, Prime Minister David Lloyd George of Britain, Premier Georges Clemenceau of France, and Prime Minister Vittorio Orlando of Italy. Each came with their own goals and agendas, leading to intense negotiations. Wilson, a scholar of political science, had a vision for a new world order based on democratic principles and international cooperation. His 14 points included proposals for self-determination, freedom of the seas, and a League of Nations to resolve international disputes and prevent future wars. Clemenceau, however, was determined to ensure that Germany could never again threaten France. He pushed for harsh penalties against Germany, including substantial reparations and the demilitarization of the Rhineland. Lloyd George was caught between these two positions. He wanted to punish Germany but was also wary of treating it so harshly that it might seek revenge. The resulting treaty placed full blame for the war on Germany and Austria-Hungary, known as the War Guilt Clause. It imposed heavy reparations on Germany, reduced its military, and stripped it of its colonies and some of its territory. The treaty also created the League of Nations, as Wilson had proposed. In Germany, the treaty was seen as a humiliating dictated peace. It caused economic hardship and stirred resentment among the German people. This resentment would be exploited by Adolf Hitler for war atrocities during World War II. The July Crisis of 1914, a series of events that led to the outbreak of World War I, is a pivotal moment in world history. It is a complex tale of assassination, nationalism, alliances, 
and miscalculations that resulted in one of the deadliest conflicts in human history. Looking back, the July crisis offers valuable insights into the dynamics of international relations, the nature of war, and the course of the 20th century. The crisis began with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary by a Serbian nationalist. This act of violence, rooted in the tensions between Austria-Hungary and Serbia, set off a chain reaction. Austria-Hungary, backed by Germany, issued an ultimatum to Serbia, which was supported by Russia. As the crisis unfolded, the complex web of alliances and rivalries among Europe's great powers came into play, escalating a regional conflict into a global war. The key figures in the July crisis were not just the political leaders and diplomats, but also the military planners and the public opinion. The crisis revealed the power of militarism and nationalism, as well as the dangers of secret treaties and arms races. It showed how the decisions of a few could affect the lives of many, and how the machinery of war, once set in motion, could be hard to stop. The July crisis also marked the beginning of a new era. The war that it sparked, World War I, would reshape the world. It would lead to the fall of empires, the rise of new nations, and the spread of revolutionary ideologies. It would change the way wars were fought and the way peace was made. It would leave a legacy of political, social, and cultural change that is still felt today. In historical perspective, the July crisis is a moment of transformation, a turning point in world history. It is a reminder of the fragility of peace, the complexity of international relations, and the human cost of war. It is a chapter in our past that offers lessons for our present and our future.